This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Growing up, I had a babysitter named Nancy who watched me every Saturday night when, after getting all dolled up, my parents went downtown to go out for dinner. I was so taken with Nancy that I attempted to emulate everything about her. I tried to dress like she did, I parted my hair on the same side, and I wore ponytails in the identical style that she did. At the time, she was the most glamorous, sophisticated, and kindest person in my life. She always brought me a pack of gum when she came to babysit. She would let me stay up late watching television, and she read to me before I went to sleep. I loved her. Nancy had a very unusual, very beautiful necklace. She wore it all the time, and it fascinated me. Describing it will be difficult, but I will try. Essentially, it was a gold chain necklace that held a small spherical charm in the shape of a cage. The charm held brightly colored loose stones. This sparkly necklace mesmerized me. Whenever she came over, she would let me wear it. I would hold the necklace in the center of my palm for hours on end and imagine that the cage held all of the stars in the solar system. Looking back on it now, I don't really know what it was about that necklace that so captivated me. But in analyzing it all of these years later, I think it was my first encounter with an object that I believed contained both beauty and magic. Several months later, my dad got a new job and we had to move from Howard Beach, Queens to Staten Island. I was inconsolable. I had just started third grade, I had made new friends, and I knew that Nancy would not be able to travel all the way to Staten Island to come to babysit. I didn't know what I would do without her. Before we said goodbye, she opened my hand and put a little box in it. I knew what it was before I opened it. The magical necklace. Her generosity overwhelmed me, and I cried the entire trip to Staten Island. Somehow, in the chaos of unpacking our new home, my magical necklace got lost. I was devastated and spent weeks on end searching the house to no avail. And in the years since, I have unsuccessfully scoured flea markets and eBay, vintage shops and jewelry stores, all in an effort to find a similar necklace. I never told anybody about my quest, but I never stopped looking for my little charm with the loose sparkly stones. What has remained is the memory of Nancy, her generosity, her warm encouragement, her caring, and her love. So it was with a deep sense of returning and giving back that I decided to become a mentor to a 15-year-old student named Alexandra in the High School of Art and Design in New York City. Alex is incredibly cool and amazingly talented, and she loves anime and horror movies, and her boyfriend, Mark, and she has one of the most extraordinary sketchbooks I have ever seen. Via this experience, I have come to realize that mentoring is more about more than just giving back. Mentoring is learning about yourself and the world. Mentoring is hard work and great fun and a big responsibility.
In Alex's senior year of high school, my main task was to assist her with college applications and encourage her to get into the best possible school. Alex had been unsure about pursuing design. She felt she might not be talented enough, and she was insecure about her ability to get into a good program. I was insistent that she not make any decisions out of fear, but rather do the very best that she could. And after all of the hard work, we were able to celebrate. She was accepted into the undergraduate design program at one of the best design schools in the country. Shortly thereafter, Alex handed me a beautifully wrapped present. I was perplexed as to why I was getting this gift, but Alex told me that she and her mother wanted to give me something to show how grateful they were for all of my help and encouragement. Alex told me this as I was about to go into a major presentation, and, but she insisted that I open the present right then and there. I opened it quickly and saw a lovely bracelet with dangly, whimsical charms. I hugged her, put the box in my purse, and went on to my presentation. The next morning, as I was getting ready to go to work, I remembered that Alex's present was still in my pocketbook. I took it out of my bag, and as I opened the box, something glinty caught my eye. I picked up the bracelet to examine it more carefully, and my heart skipped a beat. No, I thought, it couldn't be. But I could see that indeed it was. The familiar round globe, the sparkly loose stones, the little gold cage. It was identical. My long ago lost charm. It was on the bracelet, and now, once again, in my hand. I saw Alex the next day and told her the story. She was as incredulous as I was and as happy. I think when we give something of ourselves, what we get in return is immeasurable. We might be getting back because someone gave to us, or we're giving back because we know we should. Either way, when we do this, something remarkable happens. We get a uniquely human, mutually shared experience. And in that experience, continuity develops. You give something away, you get something in return, and the cycle is perpetuated. As long as we are capable and as long as we participate, the cycle can never be broken. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Petrula Von Tykes. Before we get started with our interview, please let me tell you a bit more about her. Petrula Von Tykes has been a leading voice in graphic design and in design education communities for over 20 years. Her work has appeared in over 100 books and publications and is part of the permanent collection of the Library of Congress. She lectures at conferences, universities, and to professional organizations worldwide about her work, about graphic design education, and on the subject of inspiration. She has taught the Senior Graphic Design Studies course at Art Center College of Design in Pasadena since 1989, and in 2007, Petrula received an AIGA Los Angeles Fellows Award honoring her as an essential voice raising the understanding of design within the industry and among the business and cultural communities of Los Angeles. Welcome, Petrula. Hello, how are you? I'm doing well. Well, I think that the weather in Los Angeles is certainly different from the weather on the East Coast. We yes, are I, very snowed in. Yes, I heard you're having real weather. We just have a little bit of overcast here in L.A. Oh, poor Petrula. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to start today by talking a little bit about your book, okay. which I think is a, is a wonderful example of 
the way that you think and the way that you bring different ideas and communities and ways of designing together. It's a book called Inspiration Equals Ideas, a creativity source book for graphic designers. And be before we start talking about the book, um, I, I was wondering how you might describe the book, because I found it to be a book that has, is so full of information and ideas that it's a little bit hard to actually describe. Well, I really want, to, I describe it as just trying to find out the core ways that creative people get inspired, and I asked questions to a number of prominent designers around the world, what inspires you? So in a way, the book is really about triggering our, our intuitive for us to be able to create meaningful messages and, and, and the beauty and magic that you talked about in your monologue. You know, what is it that triggers the creative process? Well, in, in the book you write, I fear that my connection to the non-visual switches might atrophy as my eyes are glued to my monitor, ear to the phone, fingers to the keyboard. I deeply sense that true inspiration comes from multi-sensorial immersion in the physical world. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? What do you mean by multi-sensorial immersion? Well, I think that... It really is about us understanding our, um, our, our view of the world that, that is not coming through a computer. I think it, the computer and our, uh, our uh, tie to it is, in a way, interfering with what is sort of naturally triggering our intuition in the physical environment, being able to be stimulated by music, being able to... To, to put our feet on the ground and be able to um, really feel what's going on all around us, not um, as, a port as something that's portaled through a computer, is much, much more important for us to get the most of what we have to offer creatively. I just, as, as, as time has gone on, as the 20 years of being a designer has, has progressed, the, the, the method by which we do our work through computers and method by which we find our information is, is kind of narrowed. And I'm trying to encourage people to broaden that scope, do things that aren't about finding something through the computer, just really immersing yourself. And I actually do that. I, one of the things I love to do is go scuba diving, and it takes me completely immersed in the physical world. I have to look underneath and all around to see what's going on, and it, it's kind of the antidote for for what it is that we've ended up doing as creative people um, through the way we, we, we design now. So you take that deep dive literally as well yes. as figuratively. I read that you, you consider yourself to be a dive geek. What's, yeah, a, a, what's a, a dive, dive geek? I'm <laughs> so excited about diving, and uh, you know that's that's where I'm always figuring out where I'm going to go next, what I'm going to see, and and um, that's that's uh, yeah. And I'm, it's, I'm a dive tech geek, too, so it, it, it surprised me. So do you work primarily by hand, or do you work equally by hand and with a computer? I work mostly with a computer. But what's interesting is, uh, you know, in, in terms of, of actually executing the work, but I'm really mostly working with my ears. Mm -hmm. um, now, what do you mean by that, you deeply, work with your ears? Deeply listening to what it is that... Um, whether it's a client that has a problem that needs to be solved uh, or it's a student that's having a particular challenge or, or issue, 
that's that's the process that I've refined is 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 really trying to deeply listen before the process ever comes about. I'll still for clients I'll still sketch out uh, initial ideas, but um, ultimately the work is is executed on the computer. Now, do you you teach quite a lot? Do you how do you feel about today's um, sketching? prowess of, of the students that you're seeing? I see it diminishing because they're trying to get through um, college very quickly to get out into the world. So instead of taking a lot of drawing, painting, or photography, or illustration classes, they're taking classes in um, software um, so they can become well-versed in, in what the tools are that they're going to need. And sometimes that keeps them from the practice of really, you know, listening, thinking, drawing, then actually um, creating. It's a dilemma. It's a dilemma for most um, most of the graphic design programs. There's just not enough time to cultivate the drawing skills that would really, really enable the thinking skills. Do you fear for the future quality of the work that designers are doing because of this lack of skill in drawing and sketching and painting and photography? Well, I'm finding that the students that are doing the best getting out into the field are ones that did take the time to cultivate their drawing skills because it's parallel with, their, with the cultivation of their thinking skills. So, you know, it, 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 whether I fear for them, I, I fear sometimes if they, if they have insecurities about their drawing that they feel like they can't do it. But there's, you know, some of them make up for that by being able to, you know, do visualization drawings versus, let's say, rendering drawings. Mm-hmm. Um, no matter what, for the advice that would be given to any student would be to take the time to cultivate drawing skills because it, it, it is so important in, in thinking. Now, you have talked very uh, significantly about the kind of education that students should seek to have and you have, uh, I think, frequently said that young people should have the best possible education that they could afford. Do you find that the quality of, ed- of an education uh, is equal to the level of money that's spent? Do you feel like the best programs in the country are programs that tend to be more expensive? Talk a little bit about, about the idea of the best education someone can afford. Well, I think it's 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 difficult because um, the best education, the best the best institutions, tend to be institutions that have a balance of instructors that are practicing professionals, along with those in in deep um, in, in in deeper academic applications such as research and theory. So that balance is there, and most of the practicing professionals that are vital in the industry will be found in major metropolitan cities. Um, so that's where some most of the um, those ex- more expensive schools tend to be, and they tend to be private institutions. I think that the connections also that are made through the school, through alumni, you know, those those are also extremely important. And Art Center is is is, is really known for being able to cultivate and um, and train students to be able to be really design leaders. So you're, you're purchasing or 
I should say, you're investing in an education that has the best faculty um, and the best reputation, and I think it makes an enormous difference. I've talked to way too many students that, that felt they got an education from a graphic design program somewhere, and then they go out in the field and they can't find a job. Their portfolios just aren't well-developed. The assignments given to them really weren't that interesting, and they really need to go back to school to get some more skills to get the kind of job they really want and the kind of career that's going to be really satisfying. Now, you have said that when you started working, when you start, the year that you started your business, you also started teaching mm-hmm. and that you've always done it this way and you'd feel isolated without both. How do they feed off of each other? Well, I think it's important for my teaching that I'm actually a practicing professional. Otherwise, I, I think students wouldn't find what I'm saying is credible. Um, and I think that I get so much out of teaching in terms of the way students inspire me or the way that uh, going through the process week after week after week, I mean, that, that, that has helped me become a bit more articulate about graphic design and about what we do and how we do it. Um, it also keeps me really fresh because I think as a, as a design firm principal, you can feel fairly isolated. Um, and being at Art Center once or twice a week is really invigorating as far as being around young people that are that are trying to do new things and have, have are really immersed in what's hip and what's going on culturally. So it, it really helps. Now, you said that you feel like it helps that that uh, working in the professional world helps with credibility with your students. In what way? Well, if I'm if I'm trying to train them uh, and enable them to be designers that are going to be hired by the best professionals, I need to understand what it is that we do um, and what it is and how, let's see, um, I just need to be really clear about what's going on in the industry yeah. um, and, and really make sure that what I'm teaching is true to what is going on in the field and that there's not a big gap there. One of the things that that I read that you said really was very, um, really fascinated me. Uh, You said that other instructors are better at teaching design theory. My focus is on practice, and I find as when I'm teaching uh, the students that I teach that there is very little concentration put on the actual practice of graphic design, and in as much there as there might be um, training in design skills and, and a person could come out with a, a wonderful portfolio, there often is not a lot of attention put on how do you actually go about selling that portfolio to get jobs and projects. So tell me a little bit more about how you focus on the practice of graphic design in your teaching. Well, because I started teaching when I was 27 years old, the only thing I really knew, or the, I should say the thing I, really, I knew the most was how to transition from student to professional. So I was trying to be as authentic as I could be in in teaching what I knew. So that's been the focus because that's, you know, that's where I started. I I teach the senior class and and they they need to be um, clear on the expectations of the industry. And one of the expectations, and the main ones, is students need to work faster and they need to work smarter and they need to show their holistic um, skills and so I give them projects that, that are, are rigorous and 
try and get them up to speed and have the projects really represent how they can be, um, you know, put on a job and, and really come up with great ideas and, and be able to execute great solutions. What's the, what's the favorite project that you give your students? Hmm. Um, I'm just, uh, we're just finishing up one that I really love, and it's called a new museum project. So they have to create a museum that doesn't exist now, mm-hmm. and they, it has to be located in a particular city that, where, where it's specifically about some kind of energy or culture in that city. So uh, some of the solutions are, are terrific. Um, one of the terrific ones was a museum of patterns that was in Barcelona. Now, when you say patterns, do you mean textiles or patterns of behavior? That that was the interesting thing, is that it had on these different floors, it was about decorative patterns, it was about cognitive patterns, and it was about musical patterns. And so the assignment is for students to um, come up with an identity for the museum, a logo design, and then create a, a, a whole experience. So what is it going to feel like to be in that museum, the, the floor plan, the, you know, what's, what's the, and they'll, they'll create the website and they'll create the uh, print materials and they'll create its, its uh, facade. So it's amazing what they come up with and I, I, I'm never disappointed. They're just, they, if you give students really interesting assignments, they'll, they'll create amazing work. Patrilla, we have a caller on the line. We have Gregory from New Jersey. Gregory, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Patrilla. How are you? Hello. Boy, there's so much you're saying that I, that I would just love to sit down and talk to you about. First of all, thank God that you're a teacher. Oh, thank you. Really and truly, because everything you say, that's, that's how um, educators should be um, approaching the students and certainly in the arts. Uh, I always, I was an actor for a long time, and I always said, you know, Young actors should just go get the best liberal arts education they can, familiarizing themselves with their language and its written word, and forget the acting teacher, <laughs> and they'll be good actors. Um, you said something that was just really um, so amazing, and that was that was talking about listening. And I'm sure you'll agree when when I say that the last generation and a half has lost their auditory skills and uh, probably is one of the most important things that's been lost. And um, do you find that? Well, I think that they're losing their translation skills. I mean, they're hearing the words, but the tools to translate those words into meaningful communication is where the gap is. Now, Patrilla, when you say translating, do you mean translating them into design solutions or mm-hmm. translate? So, yeah, okay. And when you when you're um, suggesting to them to sort of divert themselves from the iPods and the computers, uh, do they look at you blankly? As, as, what what should they do? do? Do any of them come up to you and say, "Well, now what should I do?" It depends. Um, I think they they know that there is a particular problem because they're not able to access the solutions as 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 readily as they they would like. So. Um, I mean, sometimes we just talk as clearly about it as possible, and I ask them, you know, with the museum project, they're assigned to actually go to a number of museums and view it as what the experience is, um, to take themselves out of their their shoes as the participant 
and really turn into the observer. So, uh, what you're ask, what, what I ask them to do is 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 to you know tr- test some of these tools that help them find um, view things in ways that they 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 maybe aren't trained by these you know their their texting and and iPod you know immersing immersing themselves in these in these controlled spaces and take themselves into a space where um, it's not it's not so guided right. by them by whatever their their preferences are their playlists are their you know their favorites are well I I'm hope sure that makes sense great it does <laughs> makes perfect sense I'm sure you're a great inspiration I, I'm st- I'm here in New Jersey very snowed in today oh, and, and yes. in the office is is something on the wall that I think you'll appreciate I had it framed many years ago the um, the Transit Authority in New York City had this whole campaign called Poetry in Motion. Oh, yes, of and, course. And uh, there's my favorite uh, poster I, I got from them and I framed, and it's from Goethe. And he says, one should listen to a little song, read a good poem, or look at a fine painting every single day, and if possible, say something sensible about it. And I think that's what you're communicating to your students. So God bless you for that. Oh, thanks, Gregory. Thanks, Debbie. Thanks so much for calling. Thank, Thank you. you for calling. Bye-bye. Petrola, I know that um, writing is also an important factor in your career. You do quite a lot of writing with the AIGA. You've written for magazines and various publications. Overall, do you do you feel that writing is as important to design as design skills? You talked a little bit about translation, um, about listening, and I'm just curious as to what you think the balance is of the written word versus the visual imagery. Well, I think some of the best designers um, are designers that also can write. and. Um, it is. Isn't that interesting? I mean, if you look at the really great designers, so many of them also have truly remarkable writing skills. So it, it was a skill that I hadn't really cultivated until about ten years ago. Uh, I was a little insecure about my writing, but but you know, I was being asked to contribute to articles and contribute to books, and and I I made it a point to kind of catch up a little bit and and try and be able to to be a little bit better at being able to translate my my ideas out into the world and, and AIGA um, and so it has been a great forum for that. It's helped me practice. You have a, a whole series of articles up in the AIGA forum about paying your dues and you speak with Michael Beirut and some wonderful designers and I want to share some of those stories with our listeners when we come back but we do have to take a break I want to let everybody know that they are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business I am your host Debbie Millman and my guest today is designer, author and educator Petrula Vrontaikis we will be right back with our broadcast after these messages so please don't go away Up-to-date business and financial news. Money, money. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business. Hi, this is Greg Fraley. I'm the author of Jack's Notebook, which is a business novel about creative problem solving. And I'm here to talk to you about something very creative, which is Fuse. 
Fuse is the annual event for design and culture, brand identity, and packaging. Fuse is taking place April 13th through 16th at Chelsea Pierce in New York, and has been the top destination for corporate superstars and design legends for over 10 years. Fuse delivers phenomenal experiences, thought-provoking ideas, and brilliant speakers. Be inspired by industry gurus like Malcolm Gladwell, a writer on science, culture, and human behavior, Peter Thum, who's the founder of Ethos Water, Kate Betts, editor at Time, Style, and Design, Erwin Simon, CEO of the Haines Celestial Group, and Stefan Sagemeister, one of today's most important designers. Register today at www.designmattersfuse.com and receive a 20% discount courtesy of Debbie Millman and the Design Matters Show. I hope to see you there. Have you ever had a bad day and wish someone could come along and change it at the flip of a switch? Do you dream of living the life of wealth, great relationships, and the perfect job, but don't know where to start? Then tune into The Winner's Attitude with corporate trainers, motivators, authors, and hosts, Jeff and Val G. No difficult strategies or complicated keys. Jeff and Val present a powerful and effective technology to switch your operating system to create the most amazing life. It has been said that winners have simply formed the habit of doing amazing things. Winners know how to activate that switch and so can you the winner's attitude with jeff and val g broadcast each friday at 8 a.m pacific 11 a.m eastern on the voice america business channel the winner's attitude switch me on the internet's only all business and financial radio network voice america business We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.33 Eastern Time. It is 12.33 Pacific Time. And you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is designer, author, and educator, Petrula Vrontaikis. If you'd like to join our conversation, if you have a question for Petrula, our phone lines are open. You can call 1-866-472-5790. And we have a caller holding, actually. Petrula, we have Isabel from New York on hold. Isabel, thank you for calling. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Petrula. Hi, Isabel. Speaking of mentoring, as Debbie did earlier, I'd like to know if you ever had a mentor at any point in your design career and if you weren't an educator, do you think you'd somehow find a way to share your knowledge and experience with up-and-comers, like joining a, a program or an affiliation of sorts for the design community? Uh, so your first question is, what, is whether I had a mentor? Yes. And the answer is yes. I, I had a mentor when I was at University of Denver. Her name was Judy Anderson, and she just she just taught me all about life. I mean, it was one thing that she was a fabulous designer, and I could observe that. But you know, I I grew up in a I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I'm in a little bit sheltered community, and and I didn't know things about you know feminism and and uh, you know particular movements in in art and culture. And she just shared all that with me, and I I felt so honored. And she gave me opportunities, and and I just I that experience was so important to how I view the world now that um, if I didn't teach, I would probably be mentoring um, in the same way that Debbie spoke about mentoring in her in her monologue. And I encourage 
uh, I just in, in, encourage that whole process because I think it 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 is a really beautiful circle of 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 the way or cycle of the way we can we can be um, finding out who we are in the world. How did you find each other? Did, did your school have a, a mentoring program of sorts? I she think she was a, a teacher. Ah. And, you know, she was a teacher and, and, you know, those kinds of experiences. When, when I asked a number of prominent designers in the country about their mentoring experiences, many of the mentors came from um, design school, usually undergraduate or graduate um, work, or their first jobs. And somebody just really takes them under their, their wing and they teach them about life and they teach them about um, things other than you know, graphic design skills, and they open their eyes, and it's a it's a time when it's 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 cultivating learning, and that's what that mentor experience is really about. There's a series on the AIGA.org website called Design Heroes, and it's it's where probably a dozen uh, prominent designers are are giving us their 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 stories about mentorship. It's really quite beautiful. Thank you. I think that's amazing. Thank you, Debbie. Thank, thank you, thank you Isabel. Uh, Patricia, we have another caller. We have Ruby, Ruby from Boston. Ruby, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Patricia. Hello. Um, I was wondering why, when your um, com your company is called Brontekis Design Office, your uh -huh. website is 35K. <laughs> um, this is a good story. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, Brontekis is a very difficult name to pronounce, so I felt it was important to call my office Rontikus Design. And then I thought, well, I don't want it to be abbreviated as VD, because oh, right. that would be really bad. So I decided to put office at the end. So uh, when you call my office, I can pronounce my name for you, and you don't have to stumble over it. Um, when uh, we started to get domain names and websites in the, in the early 90s, I bought VDO.com, and we had VDO.com for about, um, oh, about four years, and then a company that is out of Germany that manufactures speedometers for BMWs and Mercedes-Benz called VDO wanted to uh, buy the domain, and I sold the domain name for $35,000. Nice. And that's why the new <laughs> domain is 35 k and I'm hoping somebody wants to buy 35K, <laughs> even if it's just for 35K. <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much. Thanks for the call. Bye. So, of course, Patrilla, thank you for calling Ruby. Patrilla, it begs the question, what did you do with the 35K? Oh, I, I, I traveled. I traveled the world. I just, I've been using it to inspire my, enrich my life and inspire my design and, uh, keep myself from um, becoming stagnant. So I, I use the money. I've, I've been just a travel addict probably for the past 10 years. I'm, that's, um, that's been an incredible source of inspiration for me is, is, is travel. It, it, I'm, I'm glad you brought inspiration back up because I did want to talk to you a little bit more about your book. Um, one of the things that I thought was absolutely wonderful that I read in the book was a letter that you received from Saul Bass 
and you had written to him asking about his inspiration to include in the book. And he sent you back a letter, which you printed in its entirety. And the letter starts off, Originally, my creative urge was motivated by fear. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you see that a lot in the students that you teach or in the other design practitioners that you are close with. How much do you think designers are motiv- motivated by fear? Well, I think designers are motivated by the unknown. So it's very fearful because it is unknown. But it's very satisfying when you can sort of overcome that and create something or, 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 or move through it, this fear, because you start discovering wonderful things. So even though I think, you know, you're talking about being motivated by fear, I think it's more... Uh, it's clear that we're motivated by possibilities. And sometimes those, because those possibilities aren't clear, it's a, it's a difficult path. I, I know that in the 25 years that I've been working, I would say more than half of it, probably three-quarters of it, was motivated by fear. I, I still think <laughs> I'm, I'm motivated by fear. I, I love James Victoria's answer in the book as well. He, he's inspired by his hunger for inspiration is when the rent is due. Yes, yes. And, and I think that it's very hard to wake up every day and not be afraid of something. I think that is a lifelong quest to try to wake up and feel hopeful about all the possibilities as opposed to overwhelmed by them. Well, I um, think we start to establish courage because, I mean, it's a courageous thing to be having to create something that doesn't exist or, or solve a problem. And, I mean, as a designer, you, you slowly gain a certain amount of courage over the fear of, of having to be performing um, your, our craft uh, day in and day out, um, we never know what, what we're going to do. We never know how this thing's going to turn out. Right, so it's just a good business model, isn't it? Somebody mm-hmm. that's uh, thinking about going into the business of graphic design. What other business can you think of where six months down the line you don't necessarily know what clients you're going to have or where you'll get money from? <laughs> it takes yeah, a lot I, of courage I'm, to I'm want to do that kind of work. At, I'm sorry. I'm amazed at, at, you know, how much trust clients put in us, you know. Yeah. So, Absolutely. You know, it's, it's admirable. <laughs> Patrilla, we have another caller. We oh, have great. Michael from California on hold. Michael, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hey, Mike Dooley. It's, uh, oh, hi, hi, Michael. How hi. are you? Yeah, I was calling about a uh, comment uh, you both made before about uh, designers who write the concept. Uh, yes, and you are you are one of the best. Oh, <laughs> thank you. I was, uh, the reason I'm calling, I was, uh, I'm teaching a design history uh, class now, and at the beginning of the uh, class, uh, I ask students how many are interested in writing about design. Of course, nobody's hands go up, and uh, so then you know I have to come up with a way of making it engaging for them, coming up with assignments that uh, in which they learn that uh, uh, how writing can be valuable for them as practicing designers as well as fun. And so I, uh, uh, ma- I do manage to turn some heads around, but I was uh, wondering if you had any. Uh, suggestions in terms of uh, teaching, uh, what other opportunities uh, design students uh, are given possibly to encourage them to write. I'm assuming this question is for Petrula. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, as, as part of assignments they are given, it's important to ask them to write about the solutions 
And so it, there's a parallel that goes on in, in, in my class where they're coming up with the solution and having to articulate it and having to put it in writing. So to be able to give them exercises where they are doing these things in parallel, and, and of course, again, writing and designing, but articulating it. Those, those are the three things that, that would probably be really helpful in whatever the assignment is, that they're understanding the, the different levels of communication. Um, it helps them become better translators. Yeah, and what sort of feedback do you get from them doing, going through they this process? Practice. I don't necessarily find that, that they're terrible at it. I just think they're not asked enough to do it. Um, and some, of course, are better than others, but some of them, it's not, it, they think of it as a deficiency when actually it's just that they haven't had enough experience um, to have the confidence to know that, that they are, are actually pretty good at it or, you know, they can develop their skills with, with more with more experiences given, more requests of it. So, so they do have that aha moment where they become engaged and they and they realize that it can be a inspirational, a source of ideas and that sort of thing. Yes, and I think it, it encourages them to read more about the the things, the projects that they admire. And that was one of the inspirations for the book mm-hmm. is that students were just looking at the end result uh, of maybe a James Victoria poster or a beautiful you know, Sagmeister piece, and they didn't understand where it came from. So that actually asks those designers, what inspired you and what inspires you now? So they're, they're giving us inspiration sources, and they're writing about it. And I think that got students away from just looking at the decorative end result and got them involved in the process um, by reading these people, uh, reading what these people had to say about how they created these, these really interesting powerful images. Yeah, it's a terrific book, by the way, Inspiration Equal Ideas. Equals High Ideas. I highly recommend it. And thank you very much. Thank you for calling, Michael. Great to hear from you. (laughs) Okay, take care. Patrilla, I read an interview with you wherein the interviewer asked what you would do if you weren't practicing design, and I loved your response. You said, I probably sleep better at night. (laughs) So I wanted to know, why would you probably sleep better at night if you weren't designing? Well, I think I worry, you know, and I suppose that goes back to your saying that you're motivated by fear. You know, being a, 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 a small business owner, um, there's, a, there's a lot of hats that you have to wear. And I, you know, layer that with responsibilities and teaching. So I don't have a lot of time. Um, and I have to, so I, 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 think, I think I worry just that I'm doing the best work I can possibly do for my clients, that I'm, that I'm doing my best for my students, um, and there's a lot of anxiety when, when you take on this level of responsibility. Now, in, in um, one of your responsibilities is, is been doing quite a lot of writing for the AIGA. And as I mentioned before our break, you did a wonderful series on paying your dues. And, and it's really funny because as I was thinking about and reading the, the really funny stories that mm-hmm. some very prominent designers have, or share with uh, their audiences reading, um, was when does one ever feel like they've 
paid their dues, you know, paying their dues, paying your dues, there, there's sort of an implicit understanding that at some point you pay them. And, <laughs> and, and, and I think people like you or me feel like we're constantly paying and still paying. And, but I, I thought it was wonderful. Michael Beirut in, in his art, in his, uh, article wrote that you need to stay up late while you can because it pays off and talks about how he did two shifts in his first years working for Massimo Vignelli where he'd work during the day, go home, spend time with his wife, and then come back at the, uh, after he put his wife to bed and work from like 10 in the uh, evening till 3 in the morning. And the more he did, the more he was able to do, uh, and the more assignments he got from Massimo, and that really helped him uh, tremendously in his growth mm -hmm. as a designer. Deanna coleman Leavitt talked about how she had to work all through school uh, in various jobs. Bill Grant considered himself the carpet boy because of his uh, working in the carpet business for so many, many years while he was working as a designer. I, I personally believe that every designer should work at some point in the food industry serving food. <laughs> <laughs> so that you understand just how much you have to serve when you are uh, designing and how you have to become very accustomed to taking uh, orders to some degree. But tell, tell us a little bit more about what your thoughts are on paying your dues. How do you talk to your students about paying your dues? Do you feel like students even feel like they have to pay their dues now? Well, I think the motivation for the article was that everybody was telling students, you need to pay your dues and you need to pay your dues, and, and, and they were interpreting that in many different ways, so I thought it would be best to ask a bunch of people about their experiences. I, I think some students um, overdo it, and I think that they need to pay, they need to, you know, work harder, overcompensate, and that's a problem, And some, but others, um, you know, have a little bit of arrogance, and they feel like, I paid my money to get my degree at Art Center, and I, and so therefore, the the carpet should be laid out in front of me, and I'm 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 here, everyone. So, it, it, you know, it's, it it varies a lot. I think the the idea actually brings up our 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 personal view of of whether or not we value gathering those experiences from others, and that's what the paying the dues is is really mm -hmm. figuring out you know how you're going to to, to really prove to yourself and others that you are a, a capable designer and that you are responsible to get terrific work, and that's what Michael uh, Beirut spoke about. Um, the, you know, you were talking earlier about the, you know, that we continue to, to, to pay our dues, you and I. Well, we're trying to reinvent ourselves all the time, and when you, when you have that reinventing, um, uh, idea, you will be paying your dues over and over again because you're reaching in the unknown and you've got to kind of catch up and that's what the paying the dues, uh, paying dues is for me now. Whether it's writing or, or, you know, doing something else that I haven't, I haven't done yet that I want to, that I want to be in, interested and in, in involved in. Now, in, I read an article wherein, uh, the interviewer asked you about whether or not you considered yourself a design critic. And you responded, no, I consider myself a critic of designers' behavior. Much of the writing I do is around professional practice. Arts are against good design seeing the light of day if the creator isn't able to function properly in the world. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that. What do you mean by uh, functioning properly in the world? I think we get a lot of education about design, design skills, but we get very little education about 
how why our clients are going to hire this and us and what the expectations are of us in terms of our behavior in an economy. Um, you know, and that that goes back to whether people are being trained as artists or people are being trained as designers. And you know, e- even though many of us feel like artists, if we choose to be in graphic design, we have clients. We don't necessarily have patrons. And having a clarity about the expectation of, you know, answering a phone call, meeting deadlines, uh, doing, making sure that your ideas are original and fresh, you know, these are, and, and, and why they would be hiring us in the first place. Uh, being involved in what the economy is doing, and knowing and reading reading the reading the, the paper or you know reading online news just to get some sense of what's going on in the world, to be able to be broader in the way we can understand what our clients need, so our solutions are really credible, usable, original, and innovative. And the, they come back to us, that the experiences that clients have with us are good and they can recommend us versus, you know, the horror stories about this designer just didn't come through, I met with the principal of the firm and then I never saw that person, some junior designer was the one that was doing the project. I've heard so many horror stories from clients about designers' behavior. It, it, it's, it's, it's disheartening. So I'm really trying as a teacher to give my students as much as I can about what professional practice means and, and encourage them if they're going to start a design business to get some business training, some small business training. So they're not bogged down or confused that it's, um, it's something where you know, they can still maintain their, their craft and their integrity and, and have clients continue to give them really interesting work. How do you get most of your business? Do you make cold calls? Do you uh, get a lot of referrals? How do, how do your clients find you? It's, it's been mostly referral, and it's because I, I have a small business. If I had, if I had you know, eight to ten or, or, or more people, I would need more of a business strategy, and I'd probably hire someone to help me with sales. But keeping my business small, um, I'm getting most of my work from referral, and those referrals are word of mouth from clients, but also having your work published in in different books, even even the books like you know best of logo design or brochures and logos. Clients are looking at those things, and I've gotten a number of of, of calls from folks that found my work, and they want me to work on some new interesting venture that they're that they're involved in. Now, I know you're very involved in the Los Angeles design community. Do you find that, given how much you travel, that there is a, a certain regionality to the work in Los Angeles? How would you say it differs from the work in New York, for example? It's hard for me because I've been practicing here you know, so, for so many years. I, I, I don't know what it is like to be practicing in another city. Um, I think... The interesting thing about Los Angeles is that there's there are a lot of different industries. All the graphic designers aren't tied to entertainment. You know, there's there's a lot going on here that isn't about what the rest of the world sees in terms of you know Academy Awards and stars and stuff. Um, so there's it, it, I find that the client base to be quite diverse. You know I've got industries that that are that go in ebbs and flows. A lot of designers that worked in entertainment 
do less entertainment work now because the budgets have been cut and now they're on to, you know, some technology uh, clients and they're, or they're on to, you know, healthcare or, you know, so there's a diverse um, client base. The thing that I think unifies LA is it's, it, there are a lot of innovators here. So we have an opportunity to work on pretty new, interesting, um, sometimes crazy projects because I think a lot of the innovation begins here and um, then moves to different cities. So I find lots of fun ideas and some terrific visionaries that um, that I can I can help you know in in, in bringing their their ideas to um, out into the world. Now, given that you've worked for so long with, with so many students, you probably hear this question a lot. Um, but for the, for the benefit of our audience, I'd love to ask you this question for them. Uh, what is the, the best piece of advice you could give a, a young designer as they start out on their own practice? Mm. Well, I'll use um, what is um, my mantra, and that's listen, think, design, in that order. In that order. I love that part. That's my favorite part of your mantra. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, usually if design falls short uh, or fails, it's because those three things have been taken out of order. And I think establishing criteria with your client in the beginning is key because I think that we, we will really be able to create something wonderful if we've got the parameters right and we let ourselves thrive within those parameters. Um, usually, if people run into trouble, it's really because there wasn't proper listening and, uh, and assessment of the criteria in the beginning. So can and you then say that? after that, I would tell them to show up on a, to a meeting on time and, and, and answer phone calls promptly and... You know, do, be professional because otherwise their work, uh, their wonderful work won't see the life day and they won't have the continuity of, of clients that help a designer um, establish a, a real strong body of work. That and stay up late while you can. It pays yeah. off, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, for, thank you so much, Petrola. We've come to the end of this episode of Design Matters. I'd like to thank my special guest today, Petrola Ronktaikis. I'd like to give a very special thanks to our sponsor, Adobe, to Brian, Jeff, and Ruben at Voice America, Lisa Grant and Jen Simon at Sterling, and Edwin Rivera for all of their help. Joining me next week on Design Matters is designer Stefan Bucher. Thank you for listening, and please remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Hi, I'm Greg Fraley, author of Jack's Notebook. I'm a presenter at the Fuse Conference, the annual event for design, culture, brand identity, and packaging. Fuse is taking place April 13th through 16th at Chelsea Piers in New York, and it's been a top destination for corporate superstars and design legends for over 10 years. Fuse delivers phenomenal experiences, thought-provoking ideas, and brilliant speakers. Register today at www.designmattersfuse.com and receive a 20% discount, courtesy of Debbie Millman and the Design Matters Show. Hope to see you there.